Welcome. I am so excited to have our next guest, Scott LaPierre. I am so excited for this interview. Scott, why don't you tell everybody listening um, who you are, what you do, and what do you stand for in the world? Okay. My name is Scott LaPierre. I'm the senior pastor of Woodland Christian Church, which is in southwest Washington, about 30 minutes north of Portland, Oregon. We've been here about 10 years. Uh, we have eight children. And I started publishing books from my sermons about four or five years ago, um, Christian nonfiction book. And I thoroughly enjoy preaching God's word, studying it throughout the week. I, I want people to know Christ and know the word and understand it. And so uh, most of my time is spent pastoring, but then in my free time, I uh, enjoy writing, spend time with my family, and then I, you know, have a, a number of speaking engagements throughout the year, primarily putting on marriage conferences. Awesome. And speaking of family, uh, you have a very small family, right? <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about, you have eight children, if I remember correctly. Yeah, awesome. and so... Yeah, and I, I think, you know, if you have eight children, everyone thinks that you, you know, wanted to have all these children, or even, I hate to use this word, but tried, you know, to have all these children. It wasn't really like that. I mean, we're thankful for all the children we'll have. My wife turns 39 today, so we'll probably have a few more children, I would guess. It was more an issue of just wanting God to give us the family that he wanted, that he knew would be best. And so we haven't, you know, taken any steps for or against anything, just kind of turned it over to him and let him give us children as he sees fit and so far it's been eight and you know probably end up being a few more so we feel very thankful and blessed that's awesome so when you think of legacy what does legacy mean to you mm -hmm. yeah well actually I, I i think of my children you know i have a, a church and i have individuals that read my books and there's i don't i don't think i'm you know a huge name by any means compared to some people but there are people that tune in listen to my messages read my books um, but of all the individuals that, you know, might follow my ministry or that, or that I might be able to reach, my biggest concern is my eight children. And so when you say legacy, what I think of is what's passed down to them. I mean, you hear of pastors and they have a thriving pastoral ministry or writing career, and then their children don't walk with the Lord. And so, I mean, even last night during our family Bible study, one of my kids wasn't, wasn't listening real well or something. And I felt like this kind of intense moment, but I just said, like I felt like it was sort of a little bit of tension between us and I said hey this is the most important thing you know I have to do to to share the word with you guys for you guys to come to know Christ so when I think of legacy I think of what I want to leave with my children oh I think that's so important because it's like you know we got to pour into our own family and then you do you got your, your pastor your church family and so many and being able to like really be able to pour into all of them is so important and when you think of with your children um, as we're really in this, in this message about, you know, really relational health and what does healthy communication and unity and trust look like, what are some of the ways with your children that you guys are modeling that and really being able to like have them be able to have, you know, a good relational foundation with you? Mm -hmm. That's really good. So one thing, obviously we have to discipline or correct our children. We have to tell them when they do things that are wrong but there's an amount of tension here because we don't want to blow our children out of the water. We want them to be comfortable coming, talking to us about things. I'll, I'll use a simple example that I think many people could relate to. My oldest child just turned 13 a few months ago. And so let's say that, you know, she uh, developed some feelings for a boy or something like that. You know, we want her to come and talk to us about those feelings 
We don't want her going to the wrong places. This morning, my son came in and he was on a trip to California to, to our hometown to go visit Katie's parents. And he came and talked to me about something that happened there and he had made a bad decision. Uh, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't, it wasn't really um, very serious to be honest, but I, you know, I listened, he already felt bad about it. I didn't need to make him feel worse. And so allowing our children, and it's not that we affirm things, they're, they're sinful things. We don't approve those. We don't condone them, but we do want to uh, allow our children to come and talk to us and share things. And if we are uh, too strict or harsh with them, then we're going to be shutting down those, those channels of communication. They're going to be looking elsewhere for answers or for uh, relationships. Oh, I love that. And when you think of, you know, I know you've written several books. Um, I, I, I can't even remember. I think you said with it like 11 or, you know, written many books. And I know some of the foundation is really, you know, around a Christ-centered marriage and a Christ-centered family. Like what are some of the foundational principles? Let's start with marriage first um, mm -hmm. to really be able to, you know, because we all know it starts in that unity um, to be able to then lead the family. So what are some of the foundational principles that you think, to really have that, you know, Christ-centered, strong family? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And so when I think of Christ-centered, I think of, if, I, if we're referring to a Christ-centered marriage, I think of a marriage that centers on Christ, not just Sunday morning when the couple goes to church together, but throughout the week. What does your marriage look like Monday through Saturday? So, you know, most Christians look very spiritual or Christ-centered Sunday morning when they're going to church together. But what, what do those other days of the week look like? Are you gathered around the word? Do you pray together as a couple? Um, are, you, are you pointing each other toward Christ when there's, when there's problems or struggles? You know, when you're arguing, does your flesh flare up? Uh, uh, it does. Actually, the answer to that question is yes. But when our flesh does flare up, do we have the humility to say, hey, look, this is not going a good direction. Why don't we just pray about this and then seek the Lord? That's, that's one way to have a Christ-centered um, relationship. And then the other way is to make sure you're obeying Christ's commands. It, it would be, there's an incompatibility there. It's like, uh, you know, saying that you obey Christ or have a Christ-centered marriage while disobeying the commands that he's given is kind of like a, a plane going in two different directions. And so if we say we want to be Christ-centered, what that means is we ask, what does he want our marriage to look like? What does he want for husbands? What does he want for wives? And then we strive to obey that. And so Ephesians 5, probably the, the most well-known marriage passage, it commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, starting in verse 25 through verse 33. And before that, in verses 22 to 24, it talks about wives submitting to their husbands. And then in verse 33, it talks about wives respecting their husbands. And so we seek to obey those commands. First Peter 3, 3 verses 1 through 7 is similar. We want to apply those commands to our marriage uh, it's not a question of whether we like them, agree with them, whether they make sense. It's a, the, the only question is whether we're going to walk by faith, trust God, and uh, do what he says. That's, those are probably the, And then I guess the third thing is, you know, um, which kind of relates to the first thing. What does your relationship look like those six days of the week? Are you coming together in prayer? Do you gather around the word together? At times before Katie and I had children, we tried to read the word together. Uh, we weren't always as consistent you know there were seasons where we weren't as consistent as we'd like to be but we did try to make time to be around the word and let god be the center of our relationship in that respect awesome and when you think of especially the the, the marriages that you're you know you're really talking with and what are some of the practical ways so i so i know that was the kind of the higher level but what are some practical ways you see it i mean i know 
we all talk about is, you know, having a date night and make sure you're connecting that way. And, and I know I've sort of heard some families, they also have like, they call it a family or business meeting once a week. And one's the date night for them to connect and one's like, you know, the time, but what are some other practical ways that you've seen as families are really walking that out? Mm -hmm. Very good. So most things in life, one of the, one of the best things we can give people is time because there's, you know, it's limited. Some people would rather give money than time. I mean, if you have more money, it's easier to give money than time. It's easier to buy a gift for a child than to spend time with that child. And the marriage relationship is no different. And so interestingly, uh, it's interesting you asked this because of what just took place this past weekend. We came home from church. We had a family for lunch. We had another family over for dinner before evening service. We had people at our house Monday night and Tuesday night. And I talked to Katie and I said, and those are all good looking things. So, so I've heard it said that the enemy of, of best is good. In other words, we do good things. It's easy to justify them, but they're not always the best things. And so is it good for us to be with families in the church? It is, but I, I talked to Katie and I said, we need to kind of pull back in here as a family. I'd like us to have evenings together as a family, you know, nothing, nothing fancy, but just spending time together in the living room, talking, listening to each other. And that's not always the most thrilling to our kids. It's not, don't think that when I say that, that my eight children are like, oh yeah, we get to go sit in the living room together as a family. You know, that's part of leading your family is leading them to do things that they don't want to do. And it's the same with the marriage. This, I normally come into the office early this morning. I texted the secretary and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in there late. It's Katie's birthday. We had breakfast together, closed the door, kept the kids out and just spent the morning together. We have plans to be together tonight. And so if people do a date night, it's not an issue of how expensive it is or where you go. Even it's just an issue of having that time together and making your relationship a priority because so many things, we live in such a busy, fast-paced world, compete for our time. And the only way we can really succeed in the priorities God's given us is to, or succeed in the areas God's given us is to prioritize them and know where he wants us to invest the time and energy that we're allowed. Yeah, I love what you said that. It's really not about, you know, the extravagance of it, but really intentionality, you know, really taking that intentionality and, and making that intention just to connect it and to be there um, and do that. And, and, and really, as we're, we're, you know, unpacking this, you know, what are some other ways? Because we know that, like, you know, I know you've seen this, that money tends to be the number one thing that couples, you know, that strain them and doing that. Um, what are some practical ways that you see that, you know, really in, in relationships and that, um, and then we'll move on to the family and the children, but what are some ways that you've seen with marriages that really to keep money from being that tension and be able to have that ability to that be, you know, a, a source of generosity and, and gift and love versus tension? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first, just to affirm what you're saying. So God has given me a ministry toward marriage. Um, I preached on marriage at our church for, it was going to be like a month, ended up being closer to a year because the feedback I was receiving was good and I was enjoying it. Those sermons became my first book, Marriage God's Way. And then that allowed for conferences on marriage. And the whole reason I'm mentioning this is God opened this door for me to minister to marriages. And so I have some familiarity with some of their, the biggest problems in marriage and finances along with often in-laws or parenting is one of the biggest problems. And so to your question, I mean, it's a good one. How do we, how do we resolve that? So first, you, there has to be the recognition that the, 
basically in any area of life, there's always an acknowledgement of, of like a head or in the Bible, it's called a head that husband is the head of the relationship or head of the family. And we see that any organization, you know, there's a head coach, assistant coach, there's a pilot, co-pilot. Um, we recognize that for, there's a president, vice president for any organization or institution to run well, there has to be the kind of a final decision maker. And so when there is, so first, I guess I could have been backed up a little more. There should be discussion about purchases, especially major purchases. It's uh, very problematic when someone learns that someone, that the spouse made a purchase and it could be the husband buying something. I've seen both issues. I've seen husbands make purchases they didn't talk to their wives about. I've seen wives make purchases they didn't talk to their husbands about. Sometimes the husband is more, more frugal or wiser financially, and sometimes the wife is. And so you'll see, the, you'll see where one person does something without talking. So even though there's a head in the relationship, it's still important for these for these um, purchases to be discussed. Uh, obviously not everyone, so there's gonna be kind of a limit. There's many purchases that Katie makes that I, I, you know, whether for our homeschooling materials or for food that I don't, or clothing, that I don't, I don't learn about that, but I'm, I can still trust her to make the decisions that are best for my family. But then some of the major, major purchases, we talk about them, and I, I value all of Katie's thoughts. Rare is the decision I would make that Katie disagrees with. If she disagrees strongly, then that has a lot of weight with me. And I hope that she feels um, like her thoughts are very valued by me. And so I would tell anyone in marriage that it's very important for your spouse to feel like you have heard what they have to say, that you've taken their thoughts into consideration in, any, in all areas, including in the area of finances. And then probably the second thing I'd offer is if there's an understanding that finances are a stewardship, that's kind of a view that can be very, I'd say life-changing. It's almost a paradigm shift for people to consider that all the money that they have, that they think is theirs, is actually God's. He is only, it's only a stewardship that he wants us to be responsible for. And so that can do a couple things. First, it's somewhat freeing. You're, you don't, you're, it's easier to be generous. You mentioned generosity earlier. Well, now you're not giving your money away. You're giving God's money away. Uh, there's the part where David wanted to build the temple for God, and God told him no because he had shed blood. His son Solomon is going to build it. So David gathers all the materials and everything that he can, all of the wealth that's going to go into the construction of the temple. And then he turns around and he prays and he celebrates and he tells the Lord, all we've done is we have given back to you what you gave to us. Because David recognized that it first came, came from God. So anytime we write a check to a missionary or to the church, what we're doing is we're basically just giving back to God what he has given us. And the other thing that the appreciation of a stewardship does is it allows us to consider that we're not wasting or spending our money, we're, we're wasting or spending God's money. And so every single dollar we spend is in, in that sense a reflection of our relationship with Christ. We need to appreciate that this is God's money and he expects us to be responsible for it. And so that doesn't mean we can't go out and like, you know, we're talking about a date night, have a nice date night, go to dinner. Not to say those are, those are bad uses of God's money, but, but you kind of recognize if you do that every single night, there's a couple of people that I sat down with to help with finances. We read out their budget and they had no idea that how much money they were spending eating out, you know, sometimes multiple times per day. So then, you know, that is definitely being a bad steward then. That is kind of wasting um, God's money. So 
those are some of the things that I'd, I'd offer. Yeah, and I love, especially in the, in the first part of that is just really, it's like one, having a threshold as a couple to be able to say, hey, here's what we know. This is gonna be day-to-day -day spending. We don't need to talk to each other, but then coming together and saying for bigger purchases. But I really think the heart of that, that I love about that is them really both knowing what's going on. And that's what I have seen so often is like one runs the money, one has no clue. And then they're wondering what's going on. And so I think what really came is really coming together as in unity to say, hey, this is the resources we have. This is how we're choosing to spend them because we know where our heart is, our treasure, you know, our, you know, so being able to really know like, hey, where is our heart want to really, you know, our resources life we want to have and doing that and then really the second fold of that is you know knowing that god owns it all and not just in your personal life but i even see it in businesses and i've been able to see some great businesses really just really honor that principle and just see that just the beauty that unfolds out of that so i love both of those of just really like the heart of when you come together and you just there, there's clarity there's communication around that and so you know keeps a lot of that to not have the tension come in. So I love the way you impacted that and doing that. So now let's switch over to family a little bit. And so now it's like, you know, as a family, we know that actions speak louder than words. And so, you know, really how we're really being able to model, as I say, in our family, our children are going to see what we're modeling more than what we tell them. Um, so what are some ways that really, um, you know, as a family, what does healthy communication look like? So pretty early on, we talked to our kids about the value of money. Um, we talked to them about wasting. We talked many of the things that I've shared. We we have shared these things with our children. We wanted them to start saving when they were very young. So we took our kids to the bank and opened uh, accounts for them. I mean, I think as early as the bank would allow us. You know, I'm not kidding. Maybe like three or four or something like that. And then they would go, we go to the bank, you know, every other week or every month after their money jars fill up at home, put their money into their account. And then they love to get their little receipt from the teller saying how much they have in their account. And they like to watch that grow. And so this gives them an appreciation for money. They don't, and it also um, discourages them from spending it because they want to see the amount in their account grow. And so they know if they spend it, then it's going down. And so one, one thing, I guess I would tell parents, I would say, you actually want to do both things. You want to encourage your children to spend. And in a sense, you're going to teach, or you want to encourage your children to save, but you're also going to teach them about spending because children will want things, obviously. You know, they come and, can I have this? Can I get that? Buy me this, buy me that. As soon as they have to spend some of their money to buy it, which is what we do, we frequently tell our, we give our kids gifts, obviously, but we also tell our kids, well, if you want this, which we were not planning on getting for you, then you have to pay for half of it. And so that causes them to think twice about the things. It causes them to want to save more money uh, it causes, so that they can buy things in the future that, they, that they'd like. And it causes them to consider how much they really want it. It's a lot easier to spend someone else's money than your own money. And so when the kids have some skin in the game, it, it also causes them to take better care of things. You, you would be surprised how much better children will care for something that they have, uh, that they have purchased. And so we also, you know, try to, like, you're kind of saying it about modeling, the idea that more is caught than taught. And so we try to take good care of our stuff. I don't, I think we live modestly. 
Um, you know, we're not extravagant. I'm a, as, as a single income pastor salary, you know, pastors, most of us don't, don't make a lot of money. My church takes care of me, but we, you know, we're not extravagant. But I want our children to see us care for things and try to get, like the other day, actually, I think I was just having a conversation with my son. We were walking someplace and he saw a van and he said, when are, are we going to get another van? And I said, when ours, when we run ours into the ground, we'll probably, you know, drive it as long as we can, um, get all that we can out of it. And so when children see these things, I think it, I think they take this with them. I think if you talk to my kids, they would tell you that it's a bad idea to uh, buy a, a vehicle that's new because when you drive it off the lot, it depreciates. I think that they understand that there's an amount that they need to get to the church because, um, you know, that's what God expects of us. And like when we do certain things, I'll try to, I, I understand that typically children can stay removed from the finances. I don't think that's good. I mean, there's some, some amount that they don't need familiarity with, but like when you do your taxes, they probably don't need to be aware of that. But it is good for children to, to see what's happening with the family's finances so they can develop some familiarity with, with spending and saving, even retiring IRAs before they get older so they can think about that when they're, when they're younger. And I love that. I mean, really what you said is them really having a relationship with money that you're starting to allow them to create their own relationship. And I love it, not just in spending, but or not just in saving, but also in spending, you know, and, and having that because I've seen it on both sides where people, they just save, 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 and they never really get to enjoy the fruits of that. And then the opposite where some just spend, 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 and then they're, you know, they're not prepared for later. So I love the way you unfolded that. I love it. And when you think of having eight children, they're all different personalities. They're all, you know, they're all unique in their own ways. So tell us a little bit, because I'm sure some of them, you know, some of them take the savings a lot better. Some of them take the spending better. So having them all be so unique, what are some of the ways that you've seen that just kind of, you know, playfully um, just, you know, be different in them? And then how do you kind of steward them differently? Because they are all so unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really insightful point. Someone told me early in parenting, uh, someone that has 12 kids, actually, that I respect. She's the wife of one of the elders in our church. And she said that she talked to people that said, we don't know what we did wrong with our children. We parented all of them the same. And this woman said, well, that's the problem. You parented all of them the same. They, they are different, and they need to be parented differently. And so with our kids, and, and I think you see that you know in the Bible when Paul addresses churches, Paul's I mean, a church is Christian, but all churches are different, and Paul deals with each of them differently. He doesn't give them all the same instruction. He doesn't say the same thing to the Corinthians that he said to the Galatians, or when Jesus addresses the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, he doesn't say the same thing to each church. And so we have to deal with our children differently. For the child that is, you know, we have a, um, a child that's very, very frugal, doesn't like to spend money. That's the child that we need to talk to about generosity and giving. We have another child that can be a little wasteful that doesn't save money, and then that's a child that we need to talk to a little bit more about about um, saving and the importance of that. And so you look for those weaknesses that you're. So you kind of do two things: you look for the weaknesses your children have, and then you strive to address those or shore those up through counsel and instruction you give them. And then you also look for the strengths that your children have, and you affirm those strengths. We need to make to use kind of a financial analogy. We need to make more deposits than withdrawals with our children. And so if we're going to correct or discipline something in our children's lives, then, or we're going to make a withdrawal, we need to make sure that there's enough deposits that have been made too, so that they don't start to feel 
you know, in Ephesians 6, it tells fathers to train up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord um, and not to exasperate them. Children can get exasperated if it's lots of withdrawals without enough deposits. And so to tell our children, you know, I'm really proud of you. You've been doing a good job. I see how you've been saving your money. One of the, one of the things that's been sort of uh, funny but frustrating, I think, for my children is that they will receive money from family members. And we tell our, I'll tell the kids, hey, you know, and they'll get the money and they're supposed to spend it. And I don't want to develop a habit of spending with my children. I want to develop a habit of saving. And so I've told my kids, I would like you to take that money. Or sometimes I've given, actually, this is what I've done. And so I'll, I'll give my children a choice. I'll say, okay, you just got, you just got $100 or $50. If you will put that money in your savings, I'll add another 50% to it. So you got $100 to spend, but I will give you $150. I'll give you an extra $50 if you'll put that into your um, you know, bank account. So just things like that to make saving attractive to them. Yeah, I love that. And just sometimes we call it the carrot, but it's like them having something to move toward versus feeling like, no, 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 you know, and having to move away from it. So I, I love that. And tell us some, some stories of how this has played out that you've watched, you know, instilling some of these principles in your children that when you weren't around and maybe stories you heard from somebody in the church or somebody at school, what are some of the ways kind of like pouring into your children this way? Has you, you've seen that kind of come back? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll share a story that I shared with my students. I, before I pastored, I was an elementary school teacher, which I really loved. And if I wasn't a pastor, I'd probably go back to doing that. And I taught fourth and fifth grade, and I would take my students on field trips. And even and at that time, I mean, as an elementary school teacher, you're primarily dealing with math, science, reading, and so forth. But I still try to give them some life lessons, and, and, and that would include the discussion of money. And so I would tell the kids when we were going to go on a field trip that they were going to encounter stores for, um, you know, with little gifts and things like that, gift shops. And I would tell my students, the gifts are very overpriced. You, did, you don't want to buy them. They know that people are coming here as tourists and that when we go to this amusement park or this museum or whatever it is, there's going to be a shop and there's, they're going to be charging things, you know, two or three times what, what they should. And then I would tell the kids that if you buy something, I can almost guarantee that you're only going to enjoy it for a short period of time and then you're going to you know, be done with it and you're going to have wasted your money basically. And so literally when I would go on a field trip with my students, when we come back to the school in the evening, you know, and the parents would be there to pick up their kids, I would walk down the aisle of the bus. I'd make sure all the kids had gotten off the bus and I could literally look in the seats and I could see some of the things that the kids had purchased that they were already bored of and had just left there in the seat. So they had basically just thrown away their money on these little trinkets or gifts enjoyed them for 15 or 20 minutes and then had lost so much interest in them that they were just willing to leave it there on the bus like it was trash or something. And I think that has some application for adults too, not just children, because regularly we want, I, if you think, if we think about many of the purchases we've made, we can probably see some that within not even months, not even weeks, just days, we've already, um, lost interest in them. And so one of the things I regularly tell people is if you're thinking about a purchase, at least one that is very expensive, wait two or three weeks, see if you still want to make the purchase. And if you do, then you can be more confident that that's a good purchase. 
um, you kind of think of Esau. Esau is like the example in scripture. You know, he's willing to give up his birthright just for this pot of stew. And like where Paul says, talks about your God being your appetite, literally his appetite was his God. He would give up anything just for that immediate satisfaction. And that has a lot of application for finances because we're willing to just, we want it right at this moment. You know, I'll spend the money just to have it. And then we might not even want it a little while later. And so a good practice is, is to, when you want something to wait two, or you could even say three or four weeks and see if you still want it then. And I think most people are very surprised by um, how many things they don't want in the future if they wait and are glad that they didn't make the purchase if they just wait those, those couple weeks. So. That's so true. Cause a lot of times it's, it's an emotional, it's, it's emotional. We're in the moment and you wait a few weeks and the emotion's gone. And you're like, Meh. you know, and doing that. So I love that, you know, and doing that. So of course the heart of this is really, you know, we think about late legacy and just preparing a relational foundation of a family as they walk through that. When I think of Proverbs 13, 22, and we, you know, we always talk, you know, when we hear talking about leave an inheritance to your children's children, I think most people, when they think of inheritance, they really think of that as only money. Um, but we really know that inheritance is so much more than that. So for you, what does that, that specific scripture mean to you? Mm -hmm. That's great. I appreciate that you drew out of that more than just the financial side of it. Obviously, there's, there's a duality to that verse. Finances, in view, finances are in view there. It, it is applauding uh, parents who are, or grandparents, who are wise enough to leave an inheritance for their children and their children's children. But the greatest inheritance we want to leave our children is spiritual. Um, you think of the, I mean, no matter what you taught your parents, or no matter what parents taught their children financially, if they don't come to know Christ, when they reach the end of their lives, you know, that's essentially a wasted life. And so we, we should teach our children about finances. We should teach them to, to be generous. We should teach them to save. We sh should teach them to prepare for the future. But all of those things under the umbrella of serving the Lord. And so the greatest inheritance we want to leave with our children is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want our children to um, come to know Christ at the earliest time in their lives. We want them to have that spiritual inheritance. There's kind of this, I've seen it. I've heard a few different people um, contrasted with Jonathan Edwards, but Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher that, that preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, they looked at the children and then grandchildren, great-grandchildren that came from him, all of, the, all of the Christians, pastors, missionaries, just these godly people that serve the Lord in all these different spheres and contrasted him with different people like Karl Marx or, or ungodly people. And then the number of you know, ungodly people that came from them. And so you look at this inheritance and what these two men passed down to their children and their children's children. And what we want is we want to leave lasting legacies of children that have children that have children that are pointing them to Christ and coming to know him. I mean, that's the most important thing, you know, that we can, sh I'm, I'm surprised as a parent, how often I am preaching the gospel to my children. I thought I kind of preached the gospel to them you know, a couple times in our lives, and then most of our other family Bible studies would be spent, you know, reading other verses or different accounts in scripture, but we spent a lot of family Bible studies still talking about the gospel, um, answering my kids' questions and pointing them to Christ. So that's really the most important inheritance we can give them. Oh, I love that. And I want to switch over a little more to, um, so really, like, we've noticed successful families. So as we talk about successful families um, personally for me I have found that there's really three key ingredients and when we look back biblically 
you know, there's a statistic that really only one third of families repeated success over and over again, and about two thirds of families really, whether it was pride, greed, you know, something led to their downfall. And the three th things that I noticed in there was one is th those that kept a missional purpose. And so a lot of times with successful families, they create what they've done. And then all of a sudden they no longer have a missional purpose, which then kind of, you know, puts a crack in that foundation of like, you know, that they no longer have something that they're striving for. Um, the other one I see is really maintaining a godly humility. And the third one is maintaining a godly influence. And so I'd love to unpack those three with you and see what your, you know, what your insight on that is. So let's start with missional purpose. So what does it really mean to maintain a missional purpose? And, you know, because I even found sometimes that it's not just once you're having to do it in life. Sometimes it's more than once because you fulfilled that purpose and having to do that. So how important is it to have a missional purpose? Mm -hmm. no, I, think it's, I think it's crucial because there's only so many things we can do. There's only, uh, it's opportunity cost to say yes to something is to say no to something else. And unless you have some vision or mission in mind, you're not going to know when to say yes and when to say no. And so we homeschool our kids, which you would think gives us a ton of time with them, but which we are very thankful for the time we have with them. But there are many evenings we sit down, Katie and I together, and she and she just says, I don't know where the day went. I, and I'm, I ask her, you know, were the kids able to do their music today or were they able to do this or that? And Katie says, no, they didn't get to do that today, but they were doing these other important things. And so it's just, I'm just making the point that the, the time we have with our children is very limited. I've heard it said that the days go by slowly, but the years go by fast. And so we, to know what we're going to do as a family, or even not, not just with our children, but even as a family, um, I want my, I, I enjoy going to speaking engagements. I enjoy my family doing music. And so that's kind of part of the vision for my family. And I've shared that with Katie. And so she sees that this is what I consider as part of our vision or mission. And then she strives to embrace that. But if you don't know what you're doing or what you're planning to do as a family, then how do you know when to, what to say yes to, what to say no to? How do you know? I mean, we can only fit so many things on our plates. And so over the years, there have been some, some good things, some positive moral things that we've had to say no to just because we didn't have the bandwidth in our lives or it would conflict with the other things that um, we were pretty convinced God wanted us to do instead. Awesome. And so when we think of maintaining godly humility, how do we maintain godly humility? And how do you, and for you, how do you actually model or show that in your own family and even within your church community? Okay. So I would tell parents that you should, I don't know if I'd say regularly, but be comfortable apologizing to your children and asking them to forgive you when you're wrong. And there's no parent that doesn't make mistakes, doesn't sin. And so the issue is the issue is not, are you gonna sin or are you gonna make mistakes? The issue is how are you going to respond when you do? And our, our flesh flares up. The last thing we wanna do is go to our children and ask for their forgiveness. But when we're wrong, if we expect our children to admit when they're wrong, if we expect our children to confess their sin or repent, um, and ask for forgiveness and they need to see that from us as parents and so if we lose our temper if if I mistreat Katie if I mistreat their mother or she disrespects me then those are things we go to the children and we ask for their forgiveness and it's a real opportunity for them to see the gospel because we tell them 
daddy needs Christ as much as you do. This just, just the other night, I told the kids, I said, daddy is a sinner too. He needs Christ as much as you do. Um, Pray for daddy, pray, you know, I need the gospel. I'm not perfect. I'm trying to grow just like you guys are trying to grow. I've heard Katie do that with the kids too. The, one of my weaknesses is I don't recognize how intense I am. And um, I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses, but I genuinely think I don't recognize. And so Katie will come and tell me, Hey, when you were just talking to the, talking to Ricky or talking to Karis, you were, you were pretty intense. It was not deserved, um, you know, the level with them that you've reached. And then I need to go and I need to apologize to that child. And it's very easy to justify because I was being intense because the child did something wrong. And so it's very easy to say, well, you know, yeah, but he deserved it or she deserved it. But even if a child does something wrong, it doesn't, it doesn't um, legitimize me responding in the flesh like that. And the same thing with Katie, to humble myself to Katie and say, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't. Oh, this morning is a good example. It was her birthday. She came upstairs. I was talking with Ricky and having a nice conversation with him. And before I told her happy birthday, I kind of asked her about something that was happening. And, and it just it bothered her. I knew that it did. And she said, hey, you know, I feel like that was the first thing out of your mouth. These couple things, you never said anything about my birth. And I said, oh, you're right. You know, I feel, I feel really bad about that. Please forgive me. I wish I would have. And then when Katie left, I told Ricky, I said, yeah, that was wrong. I should, I wish I had handled that differently. I wish I had, you know, wished her happy birthday first and told her how thankful that I was for her. And then for the church, there have been a couple of times, um, at least one time when I went to the, when I went before the church and I had a letter that I wrote up asking for them to forgive me for um, some things that I wish I'd done differently or better in my ministry. And I'm, I fail as a pastor, you know, I'm not a perfect pastor. I sin as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, and the people that are affected by my sin, I need to ask for, for their forgiveness and, and ask them to pray for me. So I think godly humility is few things will cause a child to be bitter or resentful toward parents more than parents that never admit that they're wrong. And I love something you said there. So that's so at the heart of it is that one, you have to know yourself. Like if you don't know how yourself reacts in times of stress and in times of conflict and in doing that, but also I love that it sounds like with your wife, you guys have that ability to say, Hey, you know, you missed the mark a little bit on this one and, you know, and doing that and, and you really should really go heal that because that wasn't really the way. And so not just having the humility in that, but also having the awareness to know yourself to go, you're right. You know what? I was a little intense or, you know, I didn't show up in the way that I wanted to show up. And I think that sometimes is the heart of it is like, we have to know ourselves. We have to know who we are, you know, how do we react and not just in the good times, but also in stress and conflict. So I love how you said that. Um, and then also then, so how do we maintain godly influence? Cause I know we all have known stories of, you know, someone who is even in the church and they're very involved in the church and they still end up, you know, just, you know, not really that they're, you know, rather it's broken up their family because of, of infidelity or different things. And so we know that like that godly influence can take us over, you know, or, or not having that godly influence, maintaining it and being intentional with it. Um, so how do we really maintain godly influence on a day-to-day basis? So when you say this, do you mean to make sure we're being influenced in a godly way, or do you mean influencing others in a godly way? Really, it's both. And so to me, it's, okay. you know, being able to have godly influence. And so when I think of that, it, it just that, like, it's the, the ability to know that, like, 
it's not just like, hey, I accepted Christ and, and I put it on a shelf and, and now like, you know, it's that, it's, it's that every day with, you know, with your family, with your spouse, with your business, you know, with the, the grocery store encounter of, you know, how do we maintain that influence that it continues to guide us um, and, and he's always our true north. Okay. So I think about in John 15, where Jesus says that if you abide in me, you'll produce fruit. And that I've always appreciated that because it makes me feel like I don't have to strive. It's, it's not like a tree is trying really hard and then all of a sudden, boop, you know, it produces fruit. It's just, if we're abiding or we're in Christ living our lives with a, you know, a desire to please him, I'm not, I'm not excusing um, living ungodly lives and then expecting to be an influence for Christ. But we, we don't have to wake up and try really hard and say, okay, today I'm going to do these 10 things for Christ. If we're, if we're um, his disciples, generally people will see something different about us. And so you mentioned going to the, you know, to the, to the grocery store or something like that. For us, you know, you go to the grocery store and you got eight kids with you, people are going to notice that and they're going to say something. And that's, and so, you know, people can also tell when we're being, when we're forcing something, it, it can be uncomfortable. So we don't, you know, there are times when it's pretty clear God wants you to share the gospel with someone but we're not, we're not trying to be awkward or push people away or something. And so if people say, hey, you know, wow, you guys have a lot of kids or how do you do it or something like that, we'll try to say something like God has really blessed us or the Lord has really blessed us. Just, just something small, subtle to let, and that's what, that is a way to influence people and let people know we, hey, these children are a blessing. We're thankful for them. Um, you know, if you're at a restaurant, many times just praying and people see that, you know, they, when they see a family or a couple that pray and hold hands before a meal, there's been times where we finished praying and the server or the waiter, we didn't know that person had walked up. They see that. And so these aren't, these aren't really, it's not like, okay, let's pray right at this moment because we think the waiter is going to walk up. They're just things that happen very organically or naturally as we go about, you know, serving the Lord. Um, and also trying, a lot of it just has to do with availability. We've had some neighbors. I mean, most of my life now, is very limited regarding the evangelistic outreach, the evangelistic opportunity, simply because most of my life is with my church family. That's where I need to invest my time and energy. God's called me to shepherd them. So I don't have the same number of relationships with unbelievers as I used to. But before I was a pastor, I was a Christian when I was a school teacher. We had some neighbors that were, were not Christians. And it basically didn't mean much more than just trying to be available. Um, they had a surgery. We prayed for them. We tried to let them know that if they, if they needed anything, you know, we would be there for them. I think they were actually a bigger blessing to us than, than we were to them. But some of it with unbelievers is simply availability as far as being influenced in a godly way. So that's how to, that's how to influence in a godly way. But as far as being influenced in a godly way, we need to be around believers. We need to be around the body of Christ. So I would ask, so you can be around unbelievers. You're going to be around unbelievers in the workplace um, and the other places you go, but the closest people in your life should be your church family. So if I meet Christians and they say something like, well, I don't have any really close friends that are Christians and most of their close friends are, are non-Christians or unbelievers, there's something wrong there. Then they're going to be influenced in, a, in an ungodly way. There's a, there's a little passage in, um, I think it's in Haggai about meat. That's an illustration of this where he says that if you have meat that's sanctified or holy or has been set apart, and it touches unholy meat, the holy meat becomes unholy, the unholy meat doesn't become holy. And it has, the idea is transmission. And 
unholiness. Holiness is not caught. People come to know Christ and that's how they become holy. So um, holiness is not caught, but unholiness is. First Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so if we're around unbelievers, um, and I don't just mean around, but if we have close, deep relationships with them, which is why the Bible says not to be unequally yoked, we are going to be influenced in an ungodly way. So we need to reserve those closest relationships for brothers and sisters in Christ of any age. I mean, one of the nice things about the body of Christ is we've had very close friends who are older than us, younger than us. There's a young man who's single. He was in our home last night playing games, playing games with our kids. He's in his early 20s. Now, if I wasn't a Christian, I probably wouldn't be spending a lot of time with a 23-year-old, you know, but in, in the church, we're afforded these relationships where we, and those are the people that we should be closest with, so we can be influenced for the Lord. Oh, I love two things you said there, you know, in the beginning of, it's what people see when they're, you know, when no one's looking, what are you doing when no one's looking and not that you're trying to have them see it. So I just love that of just being able to show up, you know, in a way that people just see what you're doing without, you know, what's going on when no one's looking, you know, God's always looking, but when no one's looking, I love that. And then the second part of that I really loved is just, you know, having those strong relationships of people that can speak into your life and, and say, hey, I, I noticed this is going on and just really having that, that those godly, you know, relationships that allow them to speak into your life and, and doing that. So I love that. Thank you. Um, so now here's where the really tough question. So bonus, bonus round. Uh, you, you have, you're on a desert island. You can only take three things, not people, three things. What are the three things you're taking? Okay, I'm sure everyone's going to say the Bible for number one, right? Is that, I'm guessing everyone's going to say, going to say the Bible. Um, do they say second food and then shelter? Is that, or is that one of the things we can take? Too? This is about everyone else. This is you. What, what are the three things you're taking? Uh-huh. Yeah, so, you know, I, I hope I'd have the Bible. And then I suppose, I hope, I, I guess I, if I couldn't have, you know, some unlimited amount of food, which I probably couldn't, then I would, I guess I would need a book that would tell me food, you know, that I could, I'm not a very, um, you know, I'm, I'm not like a wildlife guy that can just go out and live off the land. So I need some book that would help be able to help me with that. And then probably, you know, some tools that would allow me to make the wood I needed or something and, um, you know, build this, build the shelter that I needed. So for, for my family. What about you? Does anyone ask you that during the interviews? No one has asked me yet. <laughs> so I, I really, of course, you know, yes, my Bible, of course, you know, and I keep thinking like, how do I get my bed there? Like my bed is like number one, you know, I have to have a good bed, but then also like sunglasses, <laughs> sunglasses <laughs> or a bathing suit. You know, it's really hard to pick three because then I'm thinking, okay, you know, on there. And someone said uh, they wanted their cell phone. And I said, but how do you get Wi-Fi? If you've got a cell phone, no Wi-Fi. So it's been a fun question just to see what everybody asked. So thank you for turning it back. I love it. Now, so I thank you for our time together. It's been so wonderful. So one, any last wisdom you want to let everybody know and also let everybody know how can they connect with you? Okay. So probably the last thing that I would say is we can talk about a lot of practical, um, you know, tips and advice, but I would say that if you're reading God's word regularly, and if you're a parent, and you're gathering your family around the word of God, and if you're a child, and you're growing up, and you're trying to read the word of God regularly, 
then this is kind of like Matthew 6:33, seek first the kingdom of God and these other things will be added to you. If you're putting the word of God first and you're, and you're striving to know God through it and investing time in it, you're going to be receiving the wisdom and counsel that you need for, to make the right decisions in life and for most things in life to go well. Most of the time when we're struggling uh, to know what to do or how to live, it has to, the answers for us can be found in God's word. Um, as far as connecting with me, so anyone that listened to this, I'm glad to respond to any emails from you. You can reach me through my web. That's the easiest way to reach me through my website, scottlapierre.org, not .com, but .org. So my name, S-C-O-T-T-L-A-P-I-E-R-R-E.org, scottlapierre.org. Um, I'm happy to, you, there's a contact button there. You can see some of my sermons and messages on YouTube. You can sign up for my newsletter. It'd be great for you to follow my ministry and follow my family there. And um, you can see the ways to sign up when you reach my website. My books are on Amazon. That's the primary place that I sell my books. You can find them there. But if money's tight uh, and you can't afford a book, then just go ahead and contact me through my website and I'm free to give you, or I'm happy to give you a free copy. I only ask that you read it. I didn't, I didn't start writing books because I want to make a lot of money. In fact, if anyone's listening and you're thinking of writing a book, I would tell you it's very difficult to make a lot of money from books. So write a book if you believe you have a message to share with people, which is pretty much what's behind me writing. And so if money's tight, let me know and I'm happy to give you a copy or copies of my books. But yeah, best for you to reach me through my website, scottlapierre.org. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you. Thank you for who you are, what you do, and really spending time pouring into all of us today. So I really appreciate it. So thank you, Scott. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Oh, one other thing. Um, so the free thing I would offer to all the listeners is my, I have a book I give away for free. It's called Seven Biblical Insights for Healthy, Joyful, Christ-Centered Relationships. Uh, it's just seven insights that I want to share with you. And so you can get that book for free if you go to my website. Um, thanks for putting this on, Christina. I appreciate your heart for the Lord and the privilege of being able to have a small part in it. So thanks a lot and God bless you. Thank you. Awesome.